If you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, we're slowly making our way through this great and wonderful chapter. It's such a practical chapter. It speaks to us. It resonates with us. We can relate to the characters here in this particular chapter as well. So I'm excited to, uh, to get more into it with you. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 16. You might find your way there. As you are, I would like to make a, an observation. Have you ever noticed that <clears throat> we often refer to people's lifestyles figuratively uh, in, in directions? Have you, have you noticed that? Uh, it's actually a pretty good way to, to sum up uh, people's lifestyles. We talk about walks of life. We, we warn those who entertain something dangerous or immoral, don't go down that road. Uh, we speak potentially of bad decisions as slippery slopes and dead ends. Why do we use figures for direction, or of direction rather, for, for lifestyles? Well, I think it's because these figures actually reveal how a person lives, and it, it implies at the same time the philosophy of life that drives this person. In other words, they capture the totality of a person's existence. That's why they're so they're so wonderful. If I said that Bill lives life in the fast lane, you know enough about Bill to be concerned. He lives dangerously. He lives at breakneck speed. He enjoys a fast-paced life and, and the chase of immediate satisfaction. He's not happy just to carry on cautiously and methodically. And aside from the obvious fact that you certainly wouldn't hitch a ride with him, or let, your, let him run your kids to, to school, he's not someone that you can actually trust or rely on either. Lives for the moment. Well, the Bible uses similar figures of speech about a person's moral and spiritual direction. The psalmist describes the progression of compromise in Psalm 1 as, uh, in a depraved person's life uh, as first walking in the counsel of the wicked, then sinning, or standing in the counsel of the wicked, and then finally sitting in it. Jesus claims to be the only way to God, and for a short time, Christianity itself was called the way, which communicates a certain direction propelled by a specific ideology, or theology in this case. We're not limited to figures of direction, by the way. We use figures of location, too, and very much for the same Purposes. For example, when, you, when someone asks you, what planet are you from? You know they're not flattering you, right? <laughs> Rather, they're, they're calling attention to the fact that you seem to be, well, out of touch with reality. The figure communicates fairly well, I think. Normal people don't do things that way here. Your way of doing it goes much against the norm. You, you act as if you are completely in a different world, or from a different world, a world that bears no resemblance to this one. The Bible also uses figures of location to address human thinking and behavior. It tells, <clears throat> it tells spiritually lethargic Christians to wake up from the realm of sleep, or a slumber, state of being unaware in Scripture. A related metaphor to sleeping is darkness, which Jesus uses to speak of the realm of immorality. 
It's the domain of immoral people. It's where they dwell. They love it, by the way, because it hides their evil deeds from sight. Unlike Jesus' true followers, who love the realm of light because it brings everything into plain sight. The realm, realms of darkness and light are figures for unrighteousness and sinful living of the depraved and righteous holy living of the redeemed. Similarly, the Apostle Paul would speak in 1 Thessalonians 5 of unbelievers as people of the night, which is apt, uh, I think, for unlawful living, carousing, immorality, but also where such people are oblivious to pending disaster and divine judgment. He also contrasts them with believers who are people of the day. Again, a realm that is figurative for transparency and holy living, a condition of sober-mindedness and attentiveness to God's word. They will not be caught off guard by the coming judgment. So there are nocturnal, depraved night dwellers that come out only at night, and there are diurnal, redeemed day dwellers that live in plain sight. <clears throat> One of my favorite location figures that represents the totality of an individual's beliefs and practices, his behavior and lifestyle, the, the train of thought and philosophy behind it, is the figure Fortress. Fortress. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In verses 4 and 5, Paul speaks of unbelievers who live not only in, in real fortresses, not in real fortresses, rather, but in ideological fortresses, that is, worldviews that form the basis of their particular lifestyle. They're ensconced in them. Their worldviews are much like fortresses in that unbelievers can hide themselves there. They can hide in their particular philosophies, find rationale for their ungodly living, justification for their actions. A person's worldview gives credence, really, to his lifestyle. People live in what they believe to be right for them, and their belief is a stronghold. The problem is, as Paul explains in verse 6, that these worldviews are set against the word of God. They are not biblical and therefore are necessarily satanic. They lead a person to death. And if an unbeliever persists in his godless worldview, he will, it will mean death for him. Christians need to, to rescue him then from his lethal philosophy with gospel preaching. And Paul calls us in this passage to actually destroy these worldviews, these strongholds with scripture to tear down these ideological fortresses and supplant them with the biblical worldview. Paul actually has a very clever way of communing this urgency in Greek. The Greek word translated fortress happens to be the same word for tomb. And it is likely that Paul was intentionally ambiguous by choosing this word as if to say that those ideological fortresses that people hide in for protection and validation that define them for uh, uh, define for them what real living is will eventually become their tombs they are essentially living life as fully as they know how from their grave plots in which they will be interred 
once they're done living out their destructive ideologies. How sad. We're in Hebrews 11. We're examining verses 11 to 16 where the writer uses two figures of location. And they describe the totality of the Christian's existence as it will be in eternity. The totality of the Christian's existence as it will be in eternity. By that I mean they point to a heavenly existence in eternity and all that will take place there. One figure is city. We encountered this back in verse 10 where the writer speaks of Abraham and that he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's heaven. In, the, in other words, he was seeking a heavenly city or the kingdom of God. The other location or location figure is country. In verse 16, the writer clearly says that all these heroes of faith desired a better country. Better, that is, than an earthly country. Again, that country is a heavenly one. I said that city and country are figures for the kingdom of God, and as such, they are meant to capture the totality of the Christian's existence as it will be in eternity. So to understand the kind of existence that that will be, the kind of existence that these champions in the Old Testament no doubt longed for, we have only to consult the entire New Testament for the specifics. It's all there. In fact, let's consider some of it now as it will aid our understanding, I think, of Hebrews 11. When it comes to this better country, this other city, heaven itself, the Bible is very clear about what makes it more special and desirable than anything that the world can offer. Now, this is a short list. It is a place characterized by righteousness. No deception is ever practiced there. No contaminations, no contaminants, no, no harmful beings in heaven either, including rust, moth, or robbers. There, there's no threat of being burgled ever. The, word uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil will be absent there. They'll be gone. No sin to speak of, no sorrow, no sadness, no darkness. According to the prophet Isaiah, the redeemed of the Lord will come with joyful shouting and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and singing. I'm sorry, uh, sorrow and sighing will flee away. According to Revelation 21, 27, this place is reserved for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Speaking of which, Christians themselves will have perfect knowledge there, perfect knowledge, for we will all know God, God's perfect will perfectly. We will know perfect love since there will be no need for faith and hope. Faith will have become sight and our hope will have been realized. We'll have new bodies outfitted to inhabit heaven, fully glorified. We will be what God chose us to be before the foundation of the world, absolutely holy, as represented by the white robes that we will don once we get there. We will be, in a word, Christ-like, fully conformed to the image of Messiah. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes, Beloved, we know that when, when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. All right, so with a, with a good idea at least generally speaking, of, of what our heavenly existence is like that waits for us even now. 
we can plug that into our study of Hebrews 11 and easily understand how the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints and those throughout church history, like the Reformers and the Puritans, pushed through life on this earth with the greatest of ease. Now, it wasn't because they were some... They, they were somehow immune to hardships or se- severely mistreated for their faith. Quite the contrary. They were severely mistreated for their faith. They weren't protected from persecution. In fact, many of them were martyred. No, it, it was because their eyes were fixed firmly on this better country, this kingdom of heaven with all its wonders and promises just waiting for them to experience in full. It's what they wanted more than anything in their human lives. And this is the thrust of chapter 11. The writer wants his audience, and he wants us, to see how important it is that we rely on that which is not seen, our heavenly inheritance, that which God promised, than on anything that we can see here. He wants his audience and us to be like the Old Testament champions of righteousness and develop a longing for this eternal existence that will be so full and complete. He wants them and us to love it so much, yearn and crave for it so much, want to be in that place of holiness even now so much that we would have little regard for what happens around us in this earthly temporal pilgrimage. He wants their and our attraction to heaven to be greater than to anything in this earthly life that that might vie against God for our loyalty. What I'm saying is a healthy, robust view of our heavenly home is in large part what makes for a strong walk in Christ. That is certainly the teaching from the New Testament. It's all over the place. Jesus once consoled his downtrodden disciples with the hope of heaven. Do not let your heart be troubled, he said. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you also will be. That's why they should not let their hearts be troubled. Paul Paul writes at the end of his life to his dear protege, Timothy, that his time to depart this world was at hand. And he spoke of it in such a way that it actually makes us envious of his leaving. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Isn't that wonderful? That was his thinking. And there's no question that heaven was his incentive to fight well. A bit further on, he gives this testimony. At my first defense, O Timothy, no one supported me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. 
And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Is there any any doubt at what Paul wondered and yearned for and longed for and was motivated by? No. Not at all. His entire ministry was centered around being with Christ someday. This is why he could say things like, he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and will present us with you. This, by the way, is in a, <clears throat> in a context of severe persecution, 2 Corinthians 4. <clears throat> we do not lose heart, but though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We look not at the things which are seen, which are temporal, but the things which are not seen, are eternal. That's what he looked at. That's what he chased after. That's what he sought. With this in mind, we can understand better what was Abraham's motivation to holy living. It was heaven, the, the heavenly city, the better country. And this is a motivation that belongs only to those who live by faith. In case you've missed it, let me review the writer's main points with you that we have seen so far. The first three from Abraham's life. We said first that faith obeys. And that's not just some abstract truth, beloved. That is a truth given in context for encouraging those who drift, those Christians who are drifting. So we might clarify that and say that faith obeys no matter what. No matter what God calls me to do on this foreign soil, no matter what the consequences are for doing it, I will do it. For the first century Jewish Christians and us, that means to worship and serve the Lord faithfully in anticipation of the coming kingdom and to receive well any persecution and hardship that results from that kind of worship and that kind of living. What next? We said faith abandons all for God's blessing. It abandons all. A determination to obey the Lord no matter what becomes easier when you've abandoned all that the world considers significant for a meaningful life. You know, the quality of life kind of stuff. You have God's blessing waiting for you, waiting for you. You're not concerned about material things or property any longer. You, you have a great inheritance, You don't care about being popular or well-liked because the Lord has regarded you and has made you a fellow heir in his kingdom. You can be ostracized by family or religious orders. It makes absolutely no difference. You see, what holds the interests of and motivates non-Christians are temporal and earthly. They fade away. But the kingdom and kingdom living in full someday is eternal and heavenly, and that is what we seek. Far outweighs the best that the world has to offer. So let's go. Uh, let, Let go of all in this life that has a hold on you. Let goods and kindred go, Luther wrote. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. 
The third truth, rather revolutionary, I think went like this. God's earthly temporal blessings amount to a mere foretaste of greater eternal blessings. So we should be thankful for the former, the earthly blessings, but strive for the latter, the eternal blessings. For the Christian who obeys the Lord no matter what and has abandoned all worldly pleasantries that might tug at his soul and lure him away from his focused march toward the kingdom of God so that everything really pales in significance to what awaits him in heaven, he goes even further. He goes even further. Not only does he obey no matter what and abandons all, but he ties temporal blessings that he has received from God to heaven, not to the earthly existence. Do you remember this? We, we made much of this last time. We said that many Christians who are not heavenly-minded, but rather earthbound, mistakenly tie God's temporal blessings in life to their earthly existence. And they view these blessings as what makes life worth living now. Life is hard, they say, but God's blessings make it all worth the trouble. Well, that sounds spiritual enough, but it's really a defeating view of blessings. It's defeating. The Christian who lives by faith in the future promises of God, who views his life here really as a pilgrimage, will, will not per, put permanent roots down, and nor will he understand God's blessings as what makes for the quality of life. Rather, he understands God's blessings as foretastes of glory and what motivates him to yearn for it all the more. But God heals you from a terminal illness. It is not so that you can enjoy life to the fullest here on earth. It is so you would be reminded of how great life will be for you in the kingdom. So look forward to it and use the blessings to motivate you toward it. We come now to verses 11 and 12 and the fourth truth that the writer has. They're all revolutionary. Here's how it goes. Faith overlooks physical handicaps and enables us to live for God's covenant promises. It overlooks handicaps and it enables us to live for God's covenant promises. Verse 11, by faith, Abraham was enabled to become a father, even though Sarah herself was sterile and beyond the normal age of childbearing, because he regarded as faithful the one who had made the promise. You might be wondering, what version are you reading? A little bit, uh, I'll get to that in just a moment. Anyone who considers Abraham's life will readily see that he experienced miraculous events that were beyond the realm of possibility and defied the laws of science. God's miracles are easily recognized, you see, by those who, who see with the eyes of faith. Now, verse 11. Verse 11 is rather difficult to translate, and it has led to many different translations. The most popular among these many different ones is our English Bible, or most of our English Bibles, which makes Sarah the subject of verse 11. So the NASB, the NIV, and so on, I'll give you the NASB reading. It says, By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had 
promised. <laughs> but this is not the best translation option, as far as I'm concerned. Abraham is likely still the subject of this verse for at least two reasons. First, he is the subject of the entire section. So it seems rather odd that, that, the, that Moses would break in this section, make Sarah the subject of this verse, and then go back to Abraham again as the subject of verse 12. Just doesn't seem logical. Second, the difference between whether Abraham or Sarah is the subject of verse 11 depends on how one interprets the cases of the Greek nouns in verse 11. And you say, uh, uh, that all sounds Greek to me. Right, so let me just give you, or just say rather, that Greek nouns tell you whether they are the subject, the object, or the indirect object of a sentence simply by the way they are structured. It's very different from English. English depends on word order. You know what the subject is by where it is in the sentence. Greek has a little tag on its nouns that say, I'm the subject, I'm the object, I'm the indirect object. So these indicators are built right into their forms. Now sometimes the form is ambiguous. In other words, it's hard to tell whether it's a subject or an object or an indirect object. And you have to make a decision as to the best way to translate them. So I have made a decision, and my decision is, is uh, reflected in my translation. It is an alternate one. And by the way, I'm not alone in my translation. Um, so here it is. By faith, Abraham received power to become a father. Even though, parenthetical thought, Sarah herself was sterile and beyond the age of childbearing, end of parenthetical thought, because he regarded as faithful the one who had made the promise. Now, it's really more complicated than that, but we don't have time, and, and I doubt I would do a good job in explaining it to you. So you'll have to just, uh, for sake of argument, take my translation and then say, what next? Well, there is this nagging question, how Abraham received power to become a father by faith. I mean, that's a legitimate question. Abraham received this power from God. He didn't generate it by faith, right? Uh, whether we're talking about Sarah or Abraham, the question still remains. In other words, Abraham's faith is not what caused the miraculous birth of Isaac. Don't make that mistake. And if you know the true account of Isaac's birth, you know that the Lord gave both Sarah and Abraham the ability to conceive and become pregnant in their old age. She at 90, he at 99. God overrides the laws of science. He overrides the laws of biology to have Sarah conceive when she couldn't naturally. Abraham's faith didn't do that. God himself did that. Moses is not teaching that if your faith is strong enough, you can perform miracles like this one. If Sarah, in Sarah's case, we might say that no elderly woman today, or then for that matter, can want to have a child so badly after menopause that she can actually make it happen. No. It is humanly impossible. And in Abraham's case, it is only God himself who could pull that one off for them. He performed a miracle. This is how God does things, by the way. 
he makes it clear that he will not only build a people for himself from infancy up, but often does it through broken human beings. As in the case of Sarah, she was doubly broken. She was barren all her life, and then she was well past the age of childbearing. God himself supplied the power and the ability to Abraham and Sarah. Supplied it. So what does the writer mean that Abraham received power to become a father by faith? Well, the rest of the verse tells us Abraham regarded as faithful the one who had made the promise. Since Abraham believed that God was faithful and would keep his promise to give them a biological son against all odds, Abraham acted accordingly with Sarah, if you know what I mean. Bottom line here is simply that Abraham and Sarah, who are one of God's who are one in God's eyes, lived their lives on the covenant promise of God, believing them to be real and operational. So they acted accordingly in light of them. And with the fulfillment of the child of promise, they had every incentive to continue to live by faith in the covenant word of God. God will do what he said as he has already done. Now Abraham didn't live, of course, to see the many descendants be as numerous as the grains of sand as the seashore, sadly. No. Neither did those who live after him, those Old Testament saints, but those later did, those in the New Testament. That would be these Jewish Christians in the first century, and every believer in Christ that followed them after this, or after them to this very day. We can see the covenant God made with Abraham 3,000 plus years ago, being fulfilled right before our eyes. People from every tribe and every nation of this earth are being saved. God is faithful to his word, to his promise. And this proof that God has kept his promises assures us that he will continue to keep those that have yet to be fulfilled. This is the point the writer makes to his congregation in verse 12. He says, therefore, even from one man, the one who has who was as good as dead at that. There were born descendants who were just as the stars of heaven in number and as the innumerable grains of sand along the seashore. Beloved, from a worldly vantage point, which, by the way, Abraham once shared as an unbeliever in Ur, he was essentially as good as dead without the ability to have children. His family name would have eventually died out along with him, a harsh reality to live with in an ancient culture. But God had other plans for Abraham. It was through this man that God would bless the nations of the world. And to magnify his sovereignty and power, God purposely called a man physically handicapped, so to speak, if you can call old age a handicap, and barrenness a handicap, as Sarah was, If there was to be a a continuation of a godly line that ushered in Messiah, it would come not by Abraham's might nor by power of his own, but by God's spirit, to borrow from Zechariah. This way, Abraham could not mistake the, the working of God in his life. God receives the credit. He receives the honor. So Abraham experienced God's miraculous hand of blessing because he lived by faith in God's promises. Let me say before we come to the last truth 
One popular satanic lie that circulates around church ministries is that physical ability is what makes or breaks them. Pastor elders should have experience in their lives leading people before they ever become pastors. CEOs are good candidates. Christians who are handicapped in some way literally may may, uh, may feel less important because they cannot accomplish much on their own abilities. Yet all this flies in the face of biblical reality, which is that God works in us to do and will according to his good pleasure. Read 1 Corinthians 1 sometime and find out the kinds of people that God uses to fill heaven with. He gives us spiritual gifts that have nothing whatsoever to do with natural-born talents and, in fact, gifts supersede the talents. We have character qualifications for elders that have nothing to do with whether they have ever commanded authority over large bodies of people. Last I checked, God wants men to rule their own homes well, not be CEOs of large companies. In fact, God's track record in biblical history is that he preferred to work with weak vessels, weak as the world would consider them, of course, to shame the strong and accomplish his will so that no one would ever be confused as to who is pulling this off. He called the stammering lisper to be the voice against Egypt and lead Israel out of slavery. Right? That's what God said to Moses. Who makes man blind, dumb? In other words, unable to speak. Is it not I, the Lord? So here's the truth. Faith overlooks physical handicaps and enables us to live for God's covenant promises. It doesn't make a difference what it is in life Faith overlooks them and enables us to live God's covenant promises. Set your sights on what God has promised us in his word and act accordingly. No matter how old you are and no matter what your problems might be, no matter what your handicaps might be, pay no attention to your weakness. In fact, Paul said that God's power is magnified in them. Right? Last truth here. Faith makes God's future promises a present reality. I love this one. It makes God's future promises a present reality. These four verses are really the crux of the entire chapter. They spell out for us exactly what it means to live by faith in God and his covenant promises. And I want you to grasp. I want you to grasp it, and it is essential that you do if you're going to live this way. To live by faith in God's covenant promises really means to anticipate them. And that is the next best thing to experiencing them in full. So you cannot experience them in full now because you're not in heaven. But the next best thing is to anticipate them in such a way Uh, that they become reality for you now. That's why anticipating them is the next best thing to experience them in full. Notice that the writer makes the point in verse 13 that all these died in faith without receiving the promises. Do you see that? They died without ever receiving the promises. 
Now, Abraham died before seeing Messiah come to earth and usher in the kingdom. He didn't see most of God's covenant promises manifest in real time. None of the Old Testament saints did. But please understand that longing for their rightful inheritance in Messiah was enough to make the difference in their lives. These Old Testament saints are hailed as heroes of the faith, not because they saw the promises fulfilled, but because they anticipated them to such a degree that became reality for them in their lives. They didn't have to see the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to know that they were there or to live triumphantly for God, right? Just knowing that what God promised belonged to them and would eventually become reality for them, even if in death, was enough. Notice what the writer says in the rest of verse 13. But having seen and welcomed them from a distance... Oh, there's no question that living in anticipation of what awaits us is the secret to a strong walk of faith. That's why I said anticipating God's covenant promises is the next best thing to experiencing their fulfillment. Now, these saints saw the heavenly kingdom and all that it represents with the eyes of faith. They welcomed the fulfillment of God's covenant promises from a distance. That means they joyfully welcomed what a new life with Messiah in glory would mean for them. This fourth truth that I stated a moment ago is that faith makes God's future promises a present reality. Here and now, when a believer is as excited about full redemption that awaits him in glory, the eternal and abundant life, the the perfect fellowship both with God and with God's elect, the continual joy, the heart of thanksgiving that echoes out praise to God continually, and everything else that we've already described earlier about heaven, he anticipates that by enjoying it as much as possible right now. That's right, right now. Are you saying that we can start enjoying our inheritance now? Yes, exactly. Have, having a relationship with God is part of that inheritance. And the rest that awaits we can enjoy by preparing ourselves for it. How do we do that, by the way? How do we prepare for what awaits us? Because we love it and enjoy it. We, we, we enjoy or looking forward to its enjoyment. Well, we, we prepare by investing in it by building with precious and costly stones. Using the life that God gave us for his purposes and his will, glorifying God in our bodies, Paul said. Carrying on in in our spiritual lives in the way that we know we will in heaven someday. That's how we, we live in anticipation of it and how we enjoy our inheritance Uh, Now, we strive to be perfect in our communion with God, in our fellowship with others, keeping close accounts with each other that we might avoid conflict because there are no conflicts in heaven. You see, when a believer lives on earth as he will in heaven, as much as he can, he will have absolutely no need or desire for what the world offers, none at all, nor be moved by what the world can do to him. None of that is of any consequence anymore. Part of welcoming their inheritance from afar, of anticipating it, was to live as if they had already received it. That was certainly true of Abraham 
and the other saints mentioned in chapter 11, they confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. <clears throat> they made it clear to all around them that this earth is not their home. Their interests, their, their loves, their Lord are in another country, a, a heavenly country. Christians are strangers in this world. We don't belong to it. We live as exiles away from our native heavenly country. Look at verse 14. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Did you catch that? Their own. Seeking a country of their own. This inheritance is ours. It belongs to us. God gave it to us. And we make it clear to the observing world around us that we're seeking it. When we live this way, the world notices. It notices a certain transient quality to our lives. They see that we care little for those things that matter most to them and, and most people. They may ask from time to time, how can you be so happy when, when there's so much uncertainty about the future and our country is so divided? How is it that you're, you're not interested in, in getting all you can from the government or trying to beat the system or bend the rules a bit like everyone else to get all you can? And the answer is, man, when you know Messiah personally and intimately and are redeemed and assured of eternal life and glory, there is nothing worth living here or for here. A retired Christian man gets asked regularly, why are you always working at this ministry of yours, visiting other countries in these missionary trips, volunteering your time so much at church events and spending long hours meeting with various peoples, a people uh, that you say you disciple or counsel, whatever that means? Well, by this time in your life, you should be vacationing in the Bahamas or reclining on a lounge chair in a summer home somewhere, sipping a daiquiri. The Christians who anticipate the return of Christ and the kingdom of God yearn for their heavenly home so much that they spend their time preparing for it now, investing in it now, living a life now that is characteristic of what life will look like in the kingdom. You getting the picture? of what it means to anticipate the promises of God. We mentioned how the New Testament also uses directional figures to talk about a believer's life. A penetrating example of this is when Jesus tells an overzealous follower who wants to follow him on his own terms, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. When, you, when you're all in for Jesus. You're all out for him as well. Did you get that? If you're all in for Jesus, you're all out for him as well. There are no quid pro quos to the gospel, no divided loyalties in the Christian walk. The writer makes this point in verse 15. Indeed, if they had been thinking of that country which they left, well, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Neither the riches of Egypt nor the pleasantries of this world could rest their hearts and draw them back to a life without God. That life no longer held any redeeming value and no allure, beloved. With human, earthly, passing away, depraved, powerless to offer eternal reward, their desire for heaven 
was their preoccupation. It needed to be the preoccupation of these first century Jewish Christians as well. And it needs to be the preoccupation of all Christians. The writer concludes, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Far from being ashamed to associate with his elect, God loves them and has prepared a city for them. You going there? Is it your city? Let me ask you, what planet do you come from? What do you communicate to those around you about your true home and about how much you long to be there? Is it in the way you handle crisis and pain, tragedy, riches, popularity, retirement, aging, your work ethic, your parenting, your marriage, your health? Is your relationship to your inheritance radical and demonstrable? Do you live in light of it, arranging the manner of your living around receiving what belongs to you in Christ? Do you long for it, thinking of it often, desiring it more than anything else, and to the point that nothing else really matters that much to you on this foreign land? Paul would say, no soldier for Christ in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who has enlisted him. We have seen that living by faith means that we obey the Lord and that we abandon all for him and that we consider his blessings as foretastes of our inheritance to come and that we experience his miraculous work and we enjoy the reality of our inheritance now. Can you see an obvious crescendo here in the life of Abraham that captures the importance of living by faith in the future promises of God? I want to close our time by restating, in Paul's own words, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We heard it read in our scripture reading this morning. He says, But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord. Paul says that all believers in the new covenant can see clearly now, with unveiled faces, the glory of Christ, our inheritance. We have the completed canon now, and with it the fullest picture that God has given us of what belongs to us and what waits for us. And we can see it and know it as intimately as we know our own image reflected back to us in a mirror. And while our unobstructed view of Christ, his glory and our inheritance is not as crystal clear now as it will be when we see him face to face, it is enough, it is enough to be transformed by it. We were saved from death And we were brought into a glorious state of salvation, of glory in a sense. And the Holy Spirit will enhance that state of glory by making us more and more like Christ, our inheritance. And he will bring us into greater levels of glory, which means he makes us like Christ. And the more intimate we know Christ and his glory, the more we're able to to display it in our lives. We display what we will enjoy in heaven someday. 
And the Spirit will continue to bring us from one level of manifesting Christ to another until the day we see him face to face and experience his glory in full. Beloved, not, do not let anything in this earthly, temporal, fleeting and falling world obstruct your view of what is yours in glory. 